Hi and welcome to The Three Good Podcast, a weekend podcast where I talk about all things to do with positive psychology, well-being, resilience, mental health and emotional intelligence. I'm your host, Sukhpavia. Hi folks and a happy Saturday to you. Welcome to episode 30 of The Three Good Podcast. So I emphasise that because I didn't really ever think I would get to number 30. I wasn't sure what number I'd get to, but I guess it's part of the pleasure of having a podcast and not really having a plan with it, just letting it flow and just seeing how it goes, that I'm quite happy to just kind of be where I'm at, really. And so here we are, episode 30. I don't have a real title for it yet, because I don't actually know what the title needs to be. Um... So I'm a bit stuck there, but essentially what I'm going to be talking about is how psychology helps us to understand different mental models and what those different mental models can do for us um, with respect to our self-awareness and how we interact with others. So that's kind of the essence of what it is. I need to think of a title to go with it. But anyway, I hope you're having a good weekend, folks. I hope you're having a good Saturday. It's good weather out there today. I know it's been a bit rainy um, in some parts, but actually in the main it's been a been a pretty solid, nice summer, uh, nice summer day. And that's pretty good for us over in the UK. I really enjoyed watching the women's final at Wimbledon earlier on today. Simona Hallett versus Serena Williams. And I was stunned, folks, as to just how perfect a game Simona Hallett played. And just absolutely dominated the whole match. Didn't let Serena in with even a glimmer of a chance. And you could see how prepared mentally, physically she was for it. The way she was chasing down some of those shots and getting back the winner shots that she made. They were That was some top, top class talent right there. And... She was a very deserved winner, very deserved winner. So, you know, well done to Simona Halep for winning her first Wimbledon title. And just so you know, folks, she walked away with a cheque of £2.3 million. That's not a bad two weeks' worth of work, is it now? And Serena Williams didn't walk away with too, too badly either. As a runner-up, she walks away £1.1 million. I mean, when we talk about elite sports players and the prize money that they win. This is the elite right here. And that's some epic, epic levels of prize money. And, you know, totally worth it as well. So, um, my weekend otherwise is going all right as well. I've had the, the kids are with me this weekend, but they're, they're off with uh, their mother and uh, her side of the family at a function at a, um, uh, at a Gurdwara in... West London, I believe it is they've gone off over to. There's regular events in the Sikh calendar where there are regular festivals of, um, kind of song and prayer and uh, remembrance of different events. So they've gone over to, to one of those type events. And um, I, I raise that more because it's, it, it relates to something I want to talk about in relation to this podcast episode as well. So... The podcast episode, I said, is going to be talking about how different mental models help us to understand different things about us, and you know we can we can learn to be 
really great people if we understand a variety of models as opposed to just one particular frame. And the Sikh religion really helps, helps us to highlight how this can happen in a in quite a practical way. When the Sikh religion was first coming together through Guru Nanak Devji, what, one of the things that he recognised early in his youth, early in his childhood, was that there was a lot of focus that people gave to the Muslim religion, uh, Islamic religion, sorry, and the uh, Hindu religion, and that there were a lot of people who really believed fervently about, you, you can only do things this way, you can't do things another way, and yeah, if, you, if you're not following these sets of practices, then, uh, then you're not being a good Hindu or you're not being a good Muslim. And one of the things that he found absolutely valuable was that actually if we're talking about God and if we're talking about the teachings of God, then it's really valuable to listen to what other faiths have to say and not be afraid to, uh, to listen and to take those on, take those teachings on, take those learnings on and incorporate them into your own thinking so you can develop your own philosophy. And Guru Nanak Dev Ji, he did that really powerfully. And um, for those of you who may not know, Guru Nanak Dev Ji was the first guru of the Sikhs. There were 10, Sikhs, ten gurus in total, culminating in the 11th guru, which is our uh, the uh, the living guru, we call it. The Guru Granth Sahib, which is the, it's a, uh, it's a scripture with a collection of all of the teachings of the gurus. And what Guru Nanak Dev Ji taught us was that and he did this, he actively did this himself. He travelled with um, uh, his followers who were, who were from the Muslim, who were from the, uh, who, were, who were Muslim, who were Hindu. And uh, he travelled to different countries and spent time really learning about the different religions, honouring their practices as best as he could with truth. And he, what he never did was, he never told them how to, practice their own religion. What he did was he learned from their philosophies and he uh, showed how to be a good person. And essentially by being a good person is how you get closer to God. So this isn't a religious sermon from me. I'm, I'm not trying to extol the virtues of the Sikh religion. just want to use it as an, as an example to highlight that. As a, as a way of thinking about the world, what I think has happened here really, really simply is Guru Nanak Dev Ji has taught us as Sikhs that we we should absolutely know about our own faith and we should know about our own teachings and at the same time we should not be afraid to learn and understand about other faiths and how they practice their religion because there's truth in what they say and there, is, there are valuable teachings in what they say and we can incorporate those. We can incorporate them and we can be good people by understanding those things in a really full way. So for me that's actually, that's quite fascinating because if we take a so if we take a route completely different then tangential and think about psychology and what that's taught us over the last say 60, 70 years, there are a number of really valuable mental models that help us to understand how do humans think, how do they react to different situations, what kind of personalities do they develop, how do we understand personality, how do we understand thinking processes, memory, emotions, 
and all of these different uh, words that we come to know of in kind of everyday language and we've got some really good ways to be able to to be able to um, think about those and understand those because there's been a lot of research and there's been a lot of very good um, thinking around uh, around these different concepts and I think what's really valuable about any of that and all of that is that uh, the, the the mental models that have then been created can really help us to under to develop further our thinking right so um, if, if we take one example so early on one of the early kind of research pieces done in um, in terms of behavior and how do we know how people learn different types of behavior there's a uh, particular mental model it's called conditioning so how do you condition someone to think and the classic example is the one of um, Pavlov and his dogs where this researcher found that he, he, he found that with um, with dogs in a laboratory if you uh, uh, if you associate a particular sound with food then you can cause the dogs to salivate just at the uh, sound of the noise, right? So what he did was he would uh, bring in some food and before he brought in the food, he would ring a bell. And so after several goes of this, what he found was that you could just ring the bell. The dogs would associate it immediately with they were going to receive food and then their body would salivate. So you create a condition, right? So you create an environment where X leads to Y, and it's quite purposeful, and it's quite clear how that works. Um, that's one way of uh, of conditioning, and, and another way is called what was called at the time operant conditioning, and this is a bit different. Where you could learn different types of behaviour. So, if I if I want food, uh, and I can I know it comes out of a and a they did this with rats in a cage, and they uh, pigeons, I think it might be, actually. And they, they knew that food came out of a chute, and if they wanted it, they could press a lever. So they would, anytime they were hungry, go over, press a lever, food would come out, they would have their food. But what they didn't realise is that sometimes you got messed with, and they, the lever didn't work in the way it was supposed to. So the way you thought it was going to work, it didn't, and you had to do something different in order to get the food. So you learn a different type of conditioning, right? You learn that if I do X, it can lead to Y. So two different mental models, and quite interesting, because this was quite early days of psychology and behavior and understanding, trying to understand behavior. And what that kind of insight really helps us, right, with if we think about that in today's world is, can you create conditions in which people learn different types of behavior? And absolutely we can. You know, so if you think about classic kind of parenting techniques, you know, child says, uh, mummy, daddy, can I have this? And you say, you can have that if you do X. Right? So you already, already start to condition them. You know, in their, when they're at school, they say to their teachers, um, you know, teacher, uh, can, I, can I go to the toilet? No, you need to wait until the end of the class. You know, or, you know, teacher, I need some help. Have you asked your friend first? You know, that type of approach, that type of conditioning, that, and we, we were, these words may not be used. They may not be used in the way that I'm describing them, but essentially that's what is happening here, is we're teaching a set of behaviours. 
if you want to do x behavior y, um, it needs to be done first, right? That equation should be done the other way around, but you get what I mean. So it's examples like that. It's things like that where the research has been done quite solidly and we can repeat it. Now, the interesting thing about a lot of the valuable psycho psychological research that's out there is one of the key tenets of it is that as a scientific discipline, any research that is done should be able to be replicated. So if I've done it in this type of condition with this type of group of people, with this type of, um, for this purpose, and I want to investigate uh, if these things happen, then uh, by documenting it and by writing it up, I should be able to provide enough conditions there that somebody could pick it up, take it into a completely different scenario. So say, for example, you choose to do something with a group of people in a church in a village in England, and you want to see if the results from what you've done there can be uh, will replicate and you'll get the same kind of things if you do it with a group of people in a church in a city center so similar conditions but different setting because it's in a, it's not in the village it's in a city center so would you get similar kind of results and what, what we what we know from this type of approach is that the where the results are repeated it that tells us that that particular theory, that particular hypothesis that the person put forward in the original instance has relevance across different contexts and different scenarios. And that, that approach, everything I've just described there, is absolutely valuable in helping us to understand which kind of mental models have wide applicability and are proven to have that kind of research behind them because people have been able to do similar things in different contexts and different scenarios and still got the same level of results uh, and what kind of mental models and theories are just worth nothing you know because the example or the situation within which they were done was too context specific that it can't be repeated and that's really key. There's a lot of people who come up with their own mental models, their own theories about the world, and they put them forward as truth. And what they're not doing is they're not providing enough information for other people to be able to replicate the same level of approach that they might have taken in order to test it and in order to be able to verify that that theory, that hypothesis, stands true if I take it independently and do something myself with it. And um, this also relates to, you know, modern concepts around truth and the way that we use, the way that we trust in institutions such as law, such as governance, governments as well as governance, um, you know, uh, the justice system, um, all of those things where people call into question things, uh, medicine, you know, this whole anti-vax thing, you know, all of that really um, uh, uh, is being put into question by people who think that the science is faulty or the science behind it is not, uh, is not robust enough. Whereas actually, 
in pretty much every single one of those situations. And you know, law is not a science for sure, but there are there's enough practice there that we can we can know that there is um, a, a set way of fairness and um, uh, process and procedure around that stuff. Where if it's done properly with the right level of in, um, um, intervention, then you get the you, you get the desired kind of results, and that can be replicated, and it is, and that's why I, that's why many 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 countries have a version of a justice system, a version of a set of laws, because they know that those things work. You know, so if you take a very simple example of things like traffic lights on the roads, we know that uh, through a lot of um, research into it that traffic lights work. If you want to control the flow of traffic, then installing traffic lights helps to control that flow of traffic. You can take that, put it in different countries, and it will still have the desired effect. People may not always listen to those things, and that's where punishments come into place, right? So what I'm trying to just highlight and is further explain and talk about here is that it's very when we talk about are things true, are things you know where's the evidence for things? It's it's not just about um, what's the uh, what's the evidence for it for that one particular thing. Um, in 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 a scenario you might be looking at, the important thing is to look at well. In other contexts, in different scenarios, are people trying to apply the same thing? And do they get similar kind of results? And if they do, then we have fairly good trust in that <coughs> um, in that whole attitude, approach, mental model, physical model, scientific model, whatever it might be. So in today's context, for this podcast, I'm, I'm tr trying to focus and talk about the kind of psychological mental models that are out there. So I spent some time there just trying to talk about one of the early psychological models which helped us to understand about early forms of understanding what behaviour was and how we can predict behaviour, how we can um, modify behaviour, how we can change behaviour, how we can uh, condition behaviour to happen in, in different types of scenarios and in different contexts. So since those early days, there's been a lot of modern research into some really good uh, mental models that help us to understand ourselves in different ways. And that's part of the reason of behind this podcast, actually, is um, I was quite conscious that I didn't want the podcast to just be a an advocacy kind of platform for, for just one approach. Because personally, I don't think that one mental model is enough to explain everything. Because that's just not how we work as humans, really. We can't, you know, we don't just survive by only following one particular path. And by a path, I mean um, many different things, right? So everyday life means that we have to manage ourselves in very different ways. You know, we have to have daily interactions with people because most things in life involve having to deal with other people. We have to make choices around kind of sustenance and, you know, what you choose to eat, what you choose to drink. Those choices matter. Uh, you have choices about friendships and social interactions, family and those um, 
home relationships that you have, all of those are you know, um, needed and necessary for life. And we know that any uh, disruption in any one of those different parts can cause disruption um, at fundamental levels. And so if we're like that every day, where we ha we're having to deal with lots of things anyway, and you know, one, don't forget, we can do that because we have the capability for it, right? We have the capacity for it as humans. Uh, what I mean by that is our brains and our mental pathways are robust enough and capable enough that we can handle so much information. And uh, one of the challenges we, we certainly have in today's society is that, uh, is that sometimes things can feel like they're overwhelming. And part of the reason things feel like they can be overwhelming is that we're not given enough time to think. We're not given enough time to process the stuff that we have to try and deal with. And sometimes things can be too rushed. And that works against us. That works against our best way of trying to figure stuff out. And so what I find interesting about that is if we take, for example, something like the concept of like intelligence... When we think about whether or not someone's intelligent, uh, we tend to have some traditional parameters around that. Were they able to answer a set of questions well? Did they get good results in different types of tests or exams? Um, have they been able to um, do things more successfully than others um, in work, in academia? Um, you know, those types of things. And what I think we we often forget is a lot of those assessments, a lot of that kind of evaluation is done around uh, very specific types of conditions. And intelligence doesn't necessarily work in just one time, in one way, for this particular thing. You know, if someone takes three hours to, do, to solve a problem and someone else takes a week to solve a problem, is the person who did it in three hours more intelligent than the person who did it in a week? If they both get to the same answer, does it matter that one person took a longer time than the other person? And it's questions like that which I think raise really important questions around how do we define these things in society? How do we use those concepts to judge others, you know, um, the way that we make assumptions about other people and assumptions about capability? You know, so, uh, for example kids when they're going through the education system and they have to, you know, if they're not doing well in their GCSEs by attaining level fours, I think it is, or level fives, then, you know, what was the old equivalent, what is the new equivalent of the kind of old um, C grade levels, then it calls into question that person's intelligence. I think that's a really harsh way of looking at a person's intelligence. Um, I, I don't think it's necessarily fair because just because someone might not be academically bright doesn't mean that they haven't got the intelligence to be able to deal with the same subject matter, but just dealing with it in a very different way. So, um, I th again, just want to come back to what I'm trying to raise here is that as people, we have the capability and capacity to be able to hold a lot of different types of information. We can process it in really clever and smart ways, but sometimes we're not given the right conditions within which to do that. 
So that's why in this podcast, and I, I take the approach that there's a number of things to discuss and talk about. But I don't want to just focus on one thing. I am an advocate of an advocate of positive psychology. I think it has a lot of utility and a lot of value in how we can understand how people thrive and how people can um, can appreciate more that's happening in their lives today. And at the same time, I, I absolutely know that positive psychology has limitations to what it can help with and what it can enable for individuals. It has a particular frame, it has a particular model around how it works, and that is very much around a strengths-based approach, appreciating, and what that means is, it means that looking at an individual's strengths, what they're doing on a regular basis to maintain their resilience, to really focus on their well-being, and those are important things, and I really value those. And um, and at the same time, what it really helps us to understand is that if your reality doesn't allow for you to experience those things in helpful and healthy ways, then you need to uh, you know fix those things, or not fix those, but resolve those things in ways which make sense for you. So, for example, if you recognise that you're in a harmful relationship, it doesn't matter what psycho- positive psychology teaches us, because you are too—you've got too much else going on in that harmful relationship that you can't enact and you can't do the things you might want to for positive psychology to truly have its right level of effect. And so, you know, not just that. I'm not going to just pick that as an example. If, for example, you break a leg. You know, you can't, and I've talked about this in other episodes as well, you can't just, and, um, you know, it's positive psychology won't help your leg, leg heal. Because it doesn't, um, it, it doesn't, it doesn't suddenly make the, the leg not broken because you have optimism and you have hope about the future. You can still have optimism and hope about the future, but the leg still needs to heal. It still has to go through that process. And so there's things like that, which I think sometimes people can get so hung up and so fixated on a particular model that they they get blinkered by, and they don't see that there's other things which might be valuable to look at and understand as well. And one of the things I'm personally very careful around is really making sure that we we understand things from that research base, right? Really making sure that we understand things from a place where we can say, is this verifiable? Can I take this theory and do I understand the different ways in which it's been used? In different contexts, in different scenarios, so that I understand it has wider utility than just this specific thing I might be interested in. And that's why I'm interested in the other things I I like to talk about in this podcast around emotional intelligence, resilience, well-being, mindfulness, mental health, emotional health. You know, there's a lot of different topics, there a lot of different concepts which, independently, they're worthy in and of themselves to focus on. Yeah, it's absolutely valuable to take that time and think about your own well-being. Yeah, how are you taking care of your mental health on a regular basis? If um, yeah, if you are somebody who uh, who has different mental health challenges, then 
you the level of intervention you require is a lot more broader and, and in many cases a lot more deeper than what uh, than if somebody has um, has doesn't have that those kind of conditions to have to deal with. You know, if you've um, had a mental health challenge for a particular period in your life, but it doesn't come back at a later period, then the resolution there has probably been quite effective, and the ongoing management and ongoing self care is probably supportive of how you maintain your mental health in a good place. So, um, but um, and, and so what I'm trying to say here is that it is absolutely valuable that we talk about things in isolation. Because some topics, sometimes variants of a topic, are so key and so important that we have to be able to do that. And at other times, I think it's valuable to hold concepts in the same space as other topics. So that's why I tend, that's why I tend to bring in these other concepts, because we we have, um, we have strong association with. A number of things here where for example emotional intelligence really helps us to understand how we create better connections with other people and um, improving our own self-awareness about our, my own emotions how I'm feeling how I express those how I understand other people's emotions how they express theirs and the communication the two-way understanding that that, uh, that fosters that facilitates that's so key, it's so important. And again, it's something very worthy of researching, understanding in and of itself. And we can also hold it in light with other uh, concepts as well, where it makes sense for that to happen. So, um, I hope what I'm trying to raise here is that, uh, one, as humans, we're wonderfully complex and we can handle a lot of complexity. And we do that on a regular basis. A lot of the, you know, in the last episode, I talked about the day-to-day -day stuff of life. Actually, when you break down the day-to-day -day stuff of life, what we're doing there is managing a, a number of complex, complex situations with such ease that we forget it's normal. You know, something as easy as going to the shop and, you know, to the local Sainsbury's and picking up your groceries and doing the shopping for the day or for the week ahead, it actually is a bit more complex than just doing that. It's the travel wear, it's the money you need to pay with, it's the choice of the food you want, you're going to eat, it's the planning around the different meals that you might want to make, it's the coming back from the shop, it's the unpacking and putting them into the fridge, and then from there on there's other things, right? Like the cooking and the storage of the food and whatever and so actually when you start to break it down those independent variant tasks are quite um, complex and we but we learn to do it in with such ease and with such competence you know we, we learn how to do them so well that we that we forget that there's more at play than than what we might normally assume so, and so I think it's the same with mental models as well. That sometimes we can get so fixated on just one particular mental model and uh, whether, whether or not it has broad utility that, that I don't think that that can be a useful um, way to understand the human condition. 
I think the human condition is meant to be a complex thing. We don't need to have one theory that explains lots of things about how we think and how we operate. I think it's very healthy to have a number of approaches for what we know about the human condition and how we, uh, you know, what is our potential and what is, uh, what can we, uh, what is what is what does progression mean for us and how can we be the best that we can be in different scenarios so what i'm not trying to do here is um poo poo on any one particular kind of mental model you know at the end of the day what i've learned is that i've i've grown a an understanding and an affinity towards a certain type of mental models and psychological theories because the insights we can gain from those and the research behind those and the evidence base behind them is so good that that it um, it just makes sense to listen to what those things say and there are other mental models and theories and psychological approaches out there which which don't have that level of rigor about them and that concerns me because they can be sold as really valuable ways of thinking and unfortunately they just don't stand up to scrutiny. So having said that I wasn't going to poo-poo on any particular models, I am going to totally go ahead and do that. It's, it's my purview to do that. So there is a particular model out there called Neuro Linguistic Programming, NLP for short, and it is used by a number of people who I know. They are uh, very well trained in it and they absolutely believe in it as a methodology and as a mental model. And I've tried to, I, I've tried to give it as much respect as I can because it's a very, uh, it's not just um, that there's some people who believe in it and that they really have a lot of faith and trust in what it can do. But it's used very widely across the world. There's lots. There, there are literally thousands of people out there who train in it, who develop um, themselves in this particular model. And if we go back to earlier in this podcast, I talked about how any kind of psychological theory or mental model that's that has um, any level of veracity, any level of truth behind it, really should have a, um, a verifiable set of conditions that you can replicate. And this is where the concept around NLP, it just doesn't allow for that. So if NLP were a model which could be replicated, it had a particular hypothesis behind it, and it had a particular set of outcomes that, uh, that we could measure and that we could see, did X happen because Y was taking place? then we would know whether or not we can take that and replicate it in different contexts and different scenarios like I mentioned before, right? So, for example, if I use this particular model within a school setting and I take it to a workplace setting or I take it to a factory or I take it to a hospital and I'm trying to assess very specific things as opposed to the whole model... Does that tell me if the, uh, do I get the same level of results in those different types of settings?
And what's, what can be really important here is that sometimes we get told, yes, the results do get replicated. But that's because it's been the same person doing the same thing in those different settings. And what's really valuable about, about any kind of scientific model or psychological theory is that someone who has never come across that mental model or psychological theory or approach before should be able to take it and do their stuff, do their version of it in the in different settings or even similar settings, even the same settings, and seeing do you get the same level of result. So if I've if I've trained and I haven't by the way folks, so I'm not an NLP practitioner, but if I've trained in it and I've got the uh, and, and I decided that actually this really worked in this office setting and I'm going to take it and I'm going to do it in a hospital setting and see if I get the same level of result. And hey, would you look at that? I did. The, the connection you make is it must work because I've got the same level of result. That's not necessarily 2 plus 2 equaling 4. That is more like 2 plus 4 equaling uh, 4 because you're adding the wrong things up, right? You've, you've immediately heard me say the wrong thing, come to the wrong answer, and um, what, we've, what we know is that that happens because my bias, my um, affinity towards that mental model has meant that I've looked for the markers of success. I think I've seen them again, and therefore I think it's the right thing. Whereas if... If, uh, if um, researcher Timothy went off and took my uh, mental model and the approach I took and the thing I was testing with a similar kind of group of people and went and did it, if he got the same results, then we could say that there is, uh, that the theory holds and that it does what, it, what you set out to do. If you can't do that though, and this is where NLP falls down. If you can't do that, then it can't claim those things that it does claim. And so this is where we just need to be really careful about theories like NLP because it doesn't stand up to that level of scrutiny, because it doesn't have that level of research, because it doesn't have a particular theory that you're trying to test. It's trying to it's trying to be the this theory gives you the answer for everything and that's just not how we operate that's just not how we work we are far too complex to have one model that attempts to explain everything and there are other things about the particular model around something like NLP which which are uh, unhelpful and can be quite harmful as well in the way it can be used. So one of the things that NLP does talk about is how it can manipulate an individual or how you can manipulate an individual using NLP as a technique. And they might not use the word, you know, practitioners might not use the word manipulate, but when they're trying to say things like, you can influence the way someone responds to you. You can learn their behaviours and adapt your language so that you get the cell that you want or that you get the outcome you want because you're reading different things. That is manipulation, folks. And if we're trying to manipulate others, then that tells me that the theory is not, a, um, is not an ethical framework. 
doesn't have a moral framework behind it. Because that's not what we should be trying to do. We shouldn't be trying to use any mental model, any psychological theory, to make others do things that they don't want to do. Which is why there's many people who really don't like hard selling. It's because someone is trying to sell them something that they don't want to be sold. Which is why also many people don't like being sold to full stop, because they feel like they're being manipulated into doing something, buying something that they don't need. So, that's just one particular model. There's other theories I've come across over the years where I've, when I've taken the time to really look into them and, and decide, does this look like it has the right level of insight and the right level of research and evidence base behind it that I can incorporate and that I can listen to and that I can uh, learn from? I look for those markers first. Because if they have those things, like I've talked about in the, in the podcast, the research base, the evidence base, um, and, and you know, I, I can go away and I can independently research these things without having to be sold how good a model it is, then all of that tells me in some really good ways that I should definitely be listening, you know, that I should be learning from these things and I should, um, I should take the time to investigate those things further. So if you can hear some cheering going on in the background, it's because um, the Tour de France is happening over um, right now, and within Essex, there's a, a, a around this time of year, normally there's a, um, the, the cyclists go ramped up massively, and there's some cheering going on in the background because there's some people out there helping cheer on the cyclists who are, who are on the roads. Um... Okay, folks, so I think I'm going to kind of wrap it up there, bring it together. I feel like um, this one, this episode in particular, might have been a bit incoherent. Um, I feel like it could have been a bit rambly. And so I'm really keen to hear your thoughts on what you thought about um, my uh, recording today. Um, as always, I'm really keen to hear what you have to think about anything I've put forward. I've tried to hopefully explain about how different mental models and psychological theories can really help us to understand more about the human condition. I haven't gone into specific ones and what they can specifically do for us. Uh, quite frankly, there's quite a lot. And it's, um, I think if we take the principles behind how we... Um, know whether or not they're the right things to look into, that's probably more of a useful place than whether or not uh, particular models have better truth or a utility for us. So I'm going to leave it there. Uh, I hope you're having a good weekend. I hope you continue to have a good weekend. And I shall catch you on the next episode. Goodbye. <laughs>